The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Translating Science, Transforming Practice, and Making Headway Toward Better Outcomes in SCLC. Immunotherapy has changed the game, but where do we go next? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KBM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Jonathan Goldman. I'm an associate professor of medicine at UCLA, and I'm very happy to welcome you to our discussion of small cell lung cancer. We will be discussing translating science, transforming practice, and making headway toward better outcomes in small cell lung cancer. It's my pleasure to introduce the rest of the faculty. Tiziana Leal is at the Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University and Taufik Awanakoko is at the University of Pittsburgh Hillman Cancer Center. Here's our agenda. We'll be talking about new treatment advances in the first-line therapy with immunotherapy and chemotherapy in small cell lung cancer. We'll be discussing how we apply these, this progress to clinical care and then uh, sharing our reflections. As we all know, small cell lung cancer has been a very challenging place for patient care and development uh, in the recent decades. Platinum inotoposide was uh, introduced about 50 years ago and is still the backbone of our therapy. Early response rates are high, but the duration of response is not what we would like to see. As we are trying to improve our long-term outcomes across cancer care, this is an area of serious need we found that there are several barriers to therapy in lung cancer and specifically in small cell lung cancer, some related to tobacco-related comorbidities. There can even uh, be uh, patient uh, shame and um, other factors related to a history of tobacco use and the development of this cancer, uh, as well as uh, the challenges of treating a rapidly progressive cancer. Uh, in some areas, uh, diagnosis often occurs in the hospital and therapy sometimes uh, needs to be delivered there in order to get the cancer and cancer symptoms under control. Uh, also, I think we'd like to underscore the significant need for ongoing research. Thankfully, we now have some advances and in order to carry those forward and continue to improve outcomes, something that's sorely needed, we need to focus on clinical trials. There has been real excitement across cancer care in general for immunotherapy, and what can we do to bring that to small cell lung cancer? Many, if not all of us, have seen this slide before uh, regarding tumor mutation burden across tumors. And we can see, as we all know, that small cell lung cancer has a very disordered um, genome and uh, should be an excellent target for immunotherapy. Thankfully, in the last couple of years, we've had some uh, very meaningful and significant changes in our first-line therapy, and that's where we're going to begin our discussion with Dr. Leal discussing the Empower 133 trial. Thank you, Dr. Goldman. We'll provide an overview of Empower 133. This is a study in the phase three setting that uh, randomized patients to a PDL1 inhibitor, atezolizumab in combination with platinum atoposide, followed by atezolizumab maintenance in the experimental arm. In the control arm, patients received the standard of care therapy with carboplatin atoposide and placebo. Patients were eligible with frontline uh, untreated small cell lung cancer. They had to have good performance status and also treated asymptomatic brain mets. Here we see the stratification factors of sex, ECOG performance status, and brain mets, yes versus no. And this study had co-primary endpoints of overall survival and investigator-assessed progression-free survival. Key secondary endpoints included overall response rate, duration of response, and safety. And here are the results in terms of one of the primary endpoints of progression-free survival. This is, as we know, a positive study that met its primary endpoint of uh, progression-free survival with the median progression-free survival of atezolizumab of 5.2 months. So modest improvement in progression-free survival. I think more meaningful is looking at the landmark analysis here at 12-month PFS of 12.6 versus 5.4 in the placebo arm. 
We also saw the overall survival improvement with the addition of atezolizumab to chemotherapy. And now with longer follow-up and a median follow-up of 22.9 months, we continue to see this sustained benefit of the addition of atezo to chemo with an 18-month overall survival of 34% versus 21%. And we've seen the 24-month overall survival updates also of 22% versus 16.8% in the control arm. So definitely an improvement. This led to the approval of this combination in the frontline setting. And this is our standard of care for patients with untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. So here are some of the safety results um, for Empower 133. And I think the take home message from this slide and now as we treat patients with small cell lung cancer with this regimen, we see that this regimen is well tolerated. So the addition of immunotherapy did not seem to add any additional significant toxicity to this combination. And additionally, there have been quality of life studies done that show that the addition of immunotherapy in this regimen to chemo did not, did not increase symptom burden for patients. As expected, there were more immune-related adverse events in the immunotherapy arm compared to the control arm. Looking here at the dose intensity, the dose intensity was similar for both treatment groups. The median number of doses received for atezolizumab is seven months, seven doses. Moving forward to some interesting data that has been presented that was recently uh, presented at ESMO was a little bit more of talking about the small cell lung cancer subtypes. We know that there are four, sub, uh, four biologic subtypes that can be defined based on differential expression of transcription factors. And we have here the four subtypes. And basically, I'll kind of summarize the results of this study and kind of give you a little bit more about where we think this is going. So this study looked at gene expression analysis and long-term survivors from the Empower 133 and associations between differential gene expression and these small cell lung cancer subtypes based on the RNA-seq data. I'd like to highlight though that this was done in a subset of patients in the Empower 133 study. Only about 67% of the population of the study were able to have enough tissue to perform this RNA-seq data. But I think it's interesting to highlight some of the efforts in terms of biomarker development and trying to really identify subsets of patients that are really benefiting from the combination strategy of immunotherapy plus chemo. And just to kind of give you the overview of the results of this analysis in both treatment arms, both in the atezo plus chemo and the control arm of chemotherapy um, plus placebo, the expression of genes related to cytotoxic T cells, B cells, and interferon signaling was enriched in patients who had tumors in the long-term uh, survivors. Um, just to point out, there was a slightly higher number of long-term survivors in atezo plus chemo versus not, but both of the treatment arms had this expression in the long-term survivor subsets. And then looking here at the uh, differential gene expression in long-term survivors versus not, single gene and gene expression signatures showed that the long-term survivors in both arms had elevated expression of markers of T-effector and B-cell infil infiltration and function compared to the non-long-term survivors. And then lastly, looking at these different subtypes, we've seen that there's a subtype called the small cell lung cancer I, the inflamed subtype. And I think it's interesting to point out that prior preclinical studies and other series have shown that this inflamed subtype seems to be the subgroup that appears to have the most benefit from the addition of immunotherapy to combination strategies. And here in this uh, study, in this analysis, in the long-term survivors RNA-seq population, there was a similar distribution of small cell lung cancer gene expression subtypes in both treatment groups, and the inflamed subtype was enriched and accounted for 28% of the long-term survivors receiving atezolizumab and 32% of the long-term survivors in the placebo arm. So looking here in terms of enrichment of long-term survivors among the inflamed subtype associated with atezo, there were non-significant trends observed in this small cell lung cancer subtype, the inflamed subtype. In the atezo arm, 55% were long-term survivors, and in the placebo arm, 30% were long-term survivors. There was a higher percentage of the inflamed subset that were long-term survivors versus not in the atezo arm. 
The long-term survivors in the Atezo arm were not limited to one specific subset, and there was benefit seen across all subtypes. So I think this is an interesting analysis, and I think we're kind of learning more and more about these biologic subtypes. And I think I'd like to have a discussion here with our panelists in terms of what is their take on this data, and do you see this ready for clinical practice, or is this something that we need to study prospectively in clinical trials to really roll it out to clinical practice? I think, uh, first of all, that was a, a great review, and, and thank you very much for taking us through that. Um, I think it, it is obviously a, a great unmet need to be able to select our patients that may benefit or may not benefit from immunotherapy. Um, I think it's been a very challenging area so far, and uh, we'll talk in a second about Caspian. There were some similar efforts uh, in, in Caspian, but to my eyes right now, we haven't figured this out. And I think we have some uh, interesting leads that need further study. As you said, uh, uh, applying them prospectively in a, in a confirmatory group really would make all the difference. At this point, I'm a, I am a little disappointed in all of the markers that they don't really seem to be strong markers, strong associations with benefit or, or lack of benefit. Do you see it differently? How are you thinking about this? Yeah, I, I do agree that um, these biomarker efforts using the Empower 133 data set is very encouraging, promising, taking us in the right direction. Um, I don't think we are ready to start using this information to necessarily select patients in the clinic. Uh, the hypothesis generating, albeit very strong hypothesis, so uh, being able to prospectively test whether or not the inflamed subtype, however we define it, uh, whether it's looking at the non-neuroendocrine subset as a whole or using the RNA-seq um, analysis as was done in the, um, the published manuscript uh, could be brought into the clinical arena, I think remains to be seen. But I do feel that this data is very, very encouraging and we have to um, move with it and make sure that we can validate this and hopefully bring it into regular clinical care for patients. Maybe we'll move to the Caspian trial now. So um, the Caspian trial, uh, in some ways similar, also looking at extensive stage small cell lung cancer, platinum etoposide uh, uh, alone or with immunotherapy, but there are some important differences. It is not a blinded study. Uh, it was open label. Uh, perhaps the most interesting is that there was a uh, dervalumab, a, a pdl one inhibitor plus EP arm, and then the dervalumab with tremolimumab, the CTLA-4 inhibitor, uh, as a third arm. Uh, some other differences as far as eligibility, uh, brain mets were allowed, treated or untreated, as long as they were asymptomatic. Uh, the um, EP alone arm went up to six cycles, so a little bit more of a robust comparator. Uh, there was uh, specifically PCI was allowed in that EP arm. Uh, so, uh, so to some degree trying to set up kind of a real, real world comparison about how patients might be treated. The PCI was optional, importantly. Um, and then uh, uh, as well, the platinum uh, could be carboplatin or cisplatin, uh, perhaps less important in the American uh, uh, arena, but in, in Europe, cisplatin is certainly used more often than, than in the United States. Um, the uh, Pre uh, until recently, the data was the two-year overall survival um, assessment uh, showing that the Duralumab arm did improve overall survival compared to the uh, um, EP alone arm significantly. Uh, the differences, uh, similar to the Empower 133 curves, the differences don't come on until about six months into therapy, but then the lines do diverge. Uh, the, uh, it is encouraging to see that they, they don't come and cross again. Um, the tremolimumab, dervalumab arm uh, does, performs in the end similarly to dervalumab, uh, but not better, uh, and um, statistically did not uh, have a proven benefit over the EP alone arm. The important time points here at 18 and 24 months are um, 
are very encouraging. And then even more so at the recently updated to three-year overall survival benefit, uh, where um, about a little bit over a fifth of patients are alive at two years and uh, just under 20% are alive at three years. Uh, clear distinction between the two curves and really the appearance of a plateau, uh, an improvement in the tail of the curve, uh, which, which I have found very encouraging and exciting to talk to patients about. Um, you know, really uh, more of a meaningful chance of significant uh, years of benefit compared to uh, prior to very recent. The forest plot uh, shows that uh, all groups, uh, all subgroups are benefiting carboplatin or cisplatin, younger or older, uh, man and, uh, male and female. Uh, there is a smaller group of non-smokers as would be expected, but they also seem to benefit from dervalumab. Uh, brain mets uh, or not, uh, separate analysis of liver mets also was not a negative predictor of benefit, which had been brought up uh, in previous non-small cell trials. So all of these were encouraging. I'll just briefly uh, look at the DERVA TREMI arm, uh, which also shows uh, this potential for long-term benefit. But in my mind, uh, this trial uh, li may likely has put to rest the role for CTLA-4 in small mm -hmm. cell lung cancer, although that, that could be controversial. Uh, here's the uh, subgroup analysis. Um, not, not too much to learn um, beyond the DERVA combination arm. Uh, here's some of the, uh, the, the biomarker analysis. This is TMB, uh, tumor mutation burden. Uh, it's been challenging to figure out what the appropriate cutoff of TMB is. So uh, we looked at multiple cutoffs and really uh, none of them suggested a meaningful benefit to select patients based on TMB for immunotherapy, either for Dervalumab or for Derva Tremi. Um, this uh, is some of the long-term uh, benefit analysis reported uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, uh, Perhaps similarly to what uh, Tiziana just presented, there are some long-term benefiters in both groups, but they're more commonly seen in the chemoimmunotherapy arm. About three times as many are in this long-term benefiting group. Uh, the toxicity, uh, I'm sorry, the treatment exposure uh, shows that um, uh, in the, um, I'm not sure if we have it here, but in the uh, chemotherapy arm, most patients got the six cycles of chemotherapy. Uh, there is some question if the, re if the reason that we didn't see quite as much benefit in the derva tremi arm is due to toxicity limiting delivery of immunotherapy. Um, that's not strongly suggested here, but it, it is a possibility. Uh, toxicity uh, generally uh, very manageable with the addition of dervalumab in particular. Um, uh, Tremi had, a, had some more toxicity above uh, DERVA. Uh, Immune-related adverse events, as would be expected, were higher, but generally uh, thyroid dysfunction and other very manageable toxicities. Uh, here, um, looking um, at the serious adverse events uh, in general, uh, not, a, not a, a highly concerning signal. So in summary, uh, the three-year data continues to show a real benefit to chemoimmunotherapy uh, with dervalumab with EP. Um, uh, this is uh, exciting and, and certainly an, a meaningful step forward for our patients. Uh, about three times as many patients were able to have this long-term survival with the addition of derva. So um, another opportunity to uh, take, a, take a second to discuss. Uh, if there's um, any patients that you uh, might uh, with, uh, not uh, give immunotherapy to, if there's certain uh, situations that you're concerned about, uh, or if um, there are other biomarkers uh, that you've seen in, in uh, follow-up analysis that you'd like to discuss. So I, I will take this question to start out with. In terms of patients that are not eligible for immunotherapy, I think one of the clinical questions that always comes up is a lot of our patients that are coming in being diagnosed in the inpatient setting. 
and it's been more of a, a barrier in terms of being able to logistically start patients on cycle one with the combination of chemoimmunotherapy. Sometimes these patients are patients that are coming in with organ dysfunction or performance status issues and they need to be clinically first um, optimized and they uh, receive their cycle one of chemotherapy in the hospital and then a lot of times due to logistical issues or cost issues they end up getting cycle two with immunotherapy in combination with chemo so not necessarily patients that aren't eligible but that there is perhaps you know a slight delay in starting because of of these barriers that can occur in clinical practice in terms of the patients that do not receive uh, chemo IO or immunotherapy addition to the regimen, I would say, you know, the subset of patients who are transplant uh, patients, um, you know, kidney transplants or lung transplants, those are patients that I think we really need more data in terms of the safety and efficacy in this subset of patients. And then there are the patients that have autoimmune conditions. I think increasingly um, we've seen safety and efficacy in that subset, but those patients that really require immunosuppressive therapy may not be candidates for the addition of immunotherapy. And then lastly, I think a population that has uh, not been well studied is patients with uh, perineoplastic syndromes, um, especially the neurologic perineoplastic syndromes that we see in patients with small cell lung cancer. So for this, those patients, if they are requiring additional immunosuppression or IVIG for neurologic perineoplastic syndrome, those are patients that I tend to not add immunotherapy given concerns for worsening of their neurologic perineoplastic syndrome. Exactly. I, I, I treat all of those exactly the same way. Uh, Taufik, any, anything that you've um, uh, selected in your, uh, as you're thinking about this as interesting biomarkers or uh, next steps in these uh, chemoimmunotherapy uh, development pathways? Yeah, I, currently, I don't have any validated biomarker that I go by, but what is reassuring is the fact that the IMPAR-133 and the Caspian data set actually almost look like mirror images of each other. Uh, so we, we really have very robust data showing that this uh, strategy works, unfortunately only in a subset of our patients. And figuring out who those patients are before we give them the chemoimmunotherapy will be key. Uh, it is more from the value standpoint as opposed from toxicity standpoint, because as we saw in both studies, adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy really did not um, uh, increase the toxicity rate. But the, the, main, the main value that we get by not treating everyone is that we want to give the drug to those who are more likely to benefit and not just give it to everyone willy-nilly. Uh, having said that, I think uh, Tiziana covered all of those um, Challenging situations where one may not want to give uh, immunotherapy. Uh, I would also say, at least in my own uh, approach, if a patient is a candidate for chemotherapy, they're a candidate for chemoimmunotherapy. However, if a, can if a patient is not a candidate for chemotherapy, I would not just go ahead and give them immunotherapy alone in the hope that that's going to make a difference. So uh, I think as we've always prioritized a lot of our small cell patients that we're a little bit more accepting of, you know, limited performance status to give chemotherapy, I would still use that same clinical uh, decision-making. But if somebody is really, really so far out in terms of poor performance status that I don't think they can even tolerate any chemotherapy, then I would not go out on a limb to say, well, let's just try immunotherapy by itself. I think that is less likely to, to help the patient. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, and we didn't we didn't get to get really into the history of the development. But unfortunately, there were all these negative trials and in, in second and second line and maintenance. So there does seem to be something important about the chemo immunotherapy combination and getting the immunotherapy started uh, early on in therapy. And, uh, and the one other thing to add, there there has been some really hypothesis generating studies looking at. Uh, potential biomarkers, including HLA analysis that was just reported from Caspian, uh, showing uh, about half the patients had HLA uh, analysis uh, that could be performed from the specimen sent in. 
um, and there was an association in the derva tremi arm alone with a specific HLA DQB1. Um, so it's it's really post hoc and and interesting and hard to explain why it would only be in the tremi arm, at least to my understanding. So I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't think that that's ready for prime time. But HLA analysis is really entering our understanding of immunotherapy and hopefully will provide some uh, interesting uh, understanding as we go forward. So now we'd like to uh, discuss further uh, the future directions and ongoing research. Uh, Taufik uh, can take it from here. Yeah, thank you again, Jonathan. Uh, I think we have some exciting approaches in this disease and I'm very, very hopeful that uh, we're going to have uh, new ways of managing patients, both in the early frontline setting as well as later stages of the disease. So I think the question that we continue to ask ourselves uh, is, can we actually select patients, uh, especially in the context of chemoimmunotherapy? Can we identify the right patient uh, for immunotherapy? And more importantly, can we identify the patient that we should not be giving immunotherapy for? Uh, one, so that we do not give them something that is just going to uh, be uh, sort of waste of resources because it doesn't benefit them, but also by looking at those patients in a different context to look at other strategies that might help them. And if you want to select patients at their appropriate biomarkers, uh, we've already heard from Tiziana and Jonathan about, you know, this post-hoc analysis from the Empower 133 and Caspian uh, studies respectively, how some of these uh, immune-related biomarkers could help us identify patients likely to benefit and maybe even the HLA typing uh, to help us identify those patients who might benefit disproportionately from the addition of anti-CTLA-4 uh, to the chemoimmunotherapy backbone. But the data overall to date is still very, very early, uh, immature, unvalidated, uh, but they're leading us in the right direction. So if we look at PDL1, which we know has become sort of standard in many tumor types, including non-small cell lung cancer, this has not performed as a biomarker in uh, small cell lung cancer. When we look at the Empower 133 data and the outcome based on the PDL1 expression, we see that when we look at the intention to treat overall population, the hazard ratio of 0.76. And then going through various uh, cut points uh, for the biomarker selection uh, using different percentages of PDL1 expression, whether 1% or 5%, uh, what is clear about this is we actually do not find a cut point that specifically tells us in which group of patients we should or should not use. Uh, atezolizumab along with chemotherapy. Because the importance of using a biomarker is not just to select patients to use. We also want to make sure that the biomarker is not misleading us from holding treatment for patients who are likely to benefit. So uh, I would say at this point, PDL1 based on this analysis from the Empower 133 trial uh, was not very helpful. A uh, similar result was seen with the Caspian trial uh, looking at 1%. Uh, expression on the immune cells or 1% expression on tumor cells as cut point, we could not come up with a subgroup of patients where one would be comfortable uh, to only use or not to use the Valumab along with chemotherapy. So while PDL1 expression has been useful in other tumor types, it's not very useful uh, in small cell. The other uh, challenge with using PDL1 expression, as you can see from this breakdown, is the proportion of patients with tumor or immune cell expressing PDL1 is actually very, very small. So even just the, the prevalence of PDL1 expression already excluded almost 75% of our patients. And we do know that um, patients without PDL1 expression could also benefit. And we're not going to go into all the vagaries and challenges of doing PDL1 expression on small biopsy samples that may not necessarily represent the overall uh, tumor burden in the patient. How about looking at blood-based uh, assessment? If you want to run away from just using representative or non-representative biopsies, perhaps tumor mutational burden uh, captured a study entry that was done in, in PAR133 
which has also been shown to be predictive for benefit of atezolizumab in the oak and poplar non-small cell lung cancer trials. Uh, could this be of help? Uh, there was pre-specified pre analysis uh, using the cutoff of 10 and 16 mutations per megabasis that was established from the non-small cell lung cancer trial as potential uh, threshold to identify patients who will likely benefit from the addition of atezo to chemotherapy in the EMPOWER 133 trial. What does the result show is that both of these cut point, that is 10 or 16 mutations per megabasis, uh, while you saw a trend towards um, stronger impact in terms of hazard ratio of overall survival, the higher the tumor mutational burden is, we still see that even in those with lower tumor mutational burden in the comparison, there was evidence to suggest that atezolizumab was still performing better. So we cannot use the tumor mutational burden from blood sample to exclude or to limit the use of atezolizumab uh, along with chemotherapy in this patient population. Finally, um, while we do not have chemotherapy-based or immunotherapy-based biomarkers that could help us identify patients, there are other strategies being explored, uh, either by bringing new uh, modalities of treatment into this chemoimmunotherapy backbone, or uh, bringing new immunotherapy agents, uh, as well as targeted therapies, into the early stages of small cell lung cancer, both extensive stage and limited stage disease. Now, quickly, in the next few minutes, uh, provide an overview of some of these uh, ongoing randomized trials that potentially could lead to better outcomes in patients uh, if they turn out to be positive strategies. Uh, one is the LU007 or the Raptor trial. Uh, this is building on the success that we've already noticed from the Empower 133 that adding atezolizumab to chemotherapy in the front line is useful, and this will be followed by atezolizumab maintenance. The question is if we have patients with oligometastatic disease not more than five sites of disease involvement, who did well at the end of their induction chemoimmunotherapy of four to six cycles? Can we further improve the outcome for this patient by giving them um, external beam radiation therapy to site, not more than five sites, and then allow them to continue on atezolizumab? So this trial is going to enroll 324 patients who have completed chemoimmunotherapy induction treatment and did not progress and then randomize them one-to-one -to, -one to continue just with atezolizumab per standard of care or receive radiation treatment to up to five sites and then continue with atezolizumab maintenance. Our stratification factors informed by previous experience include one to three sites versus more than three sites of disease involvement and the quality of response at the end of the chemoinduction uh, treatment prior to randomization and of course performance status which we know is a major driver of uh, survival in this disease. PCI use is optional, and this will be done during the uh, time that the patient is get the getting the consolidation external beam radiation treatment if the investigator uh, and treating physician so decide. A patient with complete response after induction therapy will not be allowed uh, to enroll on this trial. The second is the Adriatic trial, which is looking at the limited stage disease setting. And this is really a very uh, large trial that is randomizing patients who have completed four cycles of chemo radiation plus PCI to then go on to receive Dovalumab plus placebo, as we know from the Pacific trial, or Dovalumab along with Tremelimumab in the hope that double immunotherapy agent might do better, and then placebo arm will be the standard comparator arm. Uh, this study is fully enrolled. We are eagerly awaiting the result, and hopefully this will uh, give us newer options for our patient with limited stage disease. We must remind ourselves, though, that the stimuli trial tried the same strategy. Unfortunately, that was a negative trial, I think in part because of the dose of epilimumab that was used that made it difficult to deliver the planned dose. And then the LU005 is another limited stage disease which is trying to introduce uh, chemoimmunotherapy uh, very early in the course of the treatment with the radiation. So patients will be randomized to standard chemoradiation, whether BID or single daily fractionation per 
investigator decision, or the same regimen along with atezolizumab followed by atezolizumab maintenance for one year. Uh, this study is enrolling briskly. Uh, as of the last uh, update, it has actually enrolled more than half of the target uh, population of 506, and we hope that this study will be fully enrolled by the end of 2022. And then the scribe 2 is a phase 3 study that is bringing a new immunotherapy drug into the uh, potential armamentarium for treating patients. This is also building on the Empower 133 backbone. Uh, plan to enroll 400 patients to be randomized one to one to receive the Empower 133 regimen of atezolizumab, platinum, and etoposide for four cycles, or the same backbone along with tiragolumab, which is an anti-TIGIT antibody. Uh, TIGIT is one of the newer checkpoint inhibitors that have been recently described and that potentially could mediate additional uh, resistance to chemoimmunotherapy. Our early studies in non-small cell lung cancer show that this strategy could be very, very promising and we're very hopeful uh, that at the end of this trial, we might have additional options of uh, immunotherapy agents for treating patients with extensive stage small cell. Uh, finally, uh, this is uh, the SWOG trial 1929, which is a randomized trial looking at those patients who are likely to benefit from PARP inhibition. Uh, we've already known from prior work uh, in the relapse setting that Schlafen 11 could be a predictor of benefit from PARP inhibition. So this study will allow patients to complete their standard chemoimmunotherapy for four cycles. And during this time, they will be enrolled to undergo integral biomarker assessment for Schlafen 11 uh, test uh, expression. If the tumor expresses Schlafen 11, then those patients will be allowed to uh, be randomized to atezolizumab maintenance alone or atezolizumab plus telazoparib, uh, a PARP inhibitor that's already approved uh, in breast cancer. Uh, the rationale here is to select those patients who are likely to benefit from telazoparib and treat them along with atezolizumab in the maintenance setting based on the preclinical finding that targeting PAP along with checkpoint blockade could be synergistic. Uh, this study is currently enrolling and I will encourage all of our participants if they have this study open at their site to consider helping to get this done and um, offer our patient newer strategies of treatment. And then some of the agents in the horizon uh, that are still quite early in development, as well as established agents that have now been brought back in new packaging. Uh, so liposomal irinotecan is a better way to deliver irinotecan into the tumor microenvironment. Uh, this study, the resilient trial was a phase two, three trial. The phase two component was reported with encouraging uh, response rate of 44% uh, in the relapse setting. The study has now moved forward uh, to compare liposomal arenotecan to topotecan uh, in the second line setting. The importance of this trial is this is actually a trial that is contemporary where patients would have been exposed to immunotherapy before. So this could offer us a new contemporary uh, um, option of salvage therapy in the second line. And then additional strategies to use the body's immune system to uh, control small cell lung cancer growth is with the use of CAR or uh, engineered engineer T-cell product as well as bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies to redirect immune cells into the tumor microenvironment. The most advanced of this strategy is with tolatumab or AMG757. This was tested in a phase one trial that enrolled patients with previously treated and progressing small cell lung cancer uh, to receive tolatumab as a single agent. As we see on the screen, uh, this agent showed activity across several doses being tested, ranging from 0.03 to 100 milligrams of tolatumab. Uh, some toxicities were noted, uh, mostly cytokine release syndrome, which is more of on target, uh, uh, consistent with the expected uh, mechanism of action of this drug, 44% of uh, patients experience some degree of cytokine release syndrome. Reassuringly, only 2% of these were grade 3 or higher. Uh, there was a case of grade 5 pneumonitis reported uh, as DLT as well as a grade 3 encephalopathy. Uh, but 
early efficacy signal is there that response rate of 20%, especially at, in patients treated at higher doses of 30%, is quite promising and encouraging that this could offer us additional options of treatment for patients. Uh, in those patients that responded, the median duration of response in this heavily pretreated population was 8.7 months. So there is more to be learned as this study continues. Uh, there are now also two or three other uh, bispecific T-cell engaging antibody constructs being tested in small cell lung cancer, either alone or in combination with immunotherapy. So with that, uh, I would uh, open it up to my co-panelists to sort of get their own viewpoint on what they feel uh, is very promising in the uh, coming years, and especially also to highlight some of the innovative trials that they're doing at UCLA, at Emory, as well as here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jonathan and uh, Tiziana. Well, I, I think you've highlighted really the, some very exciting work there. I, I think liposomal arena TCAN relatively simple, but a very encouraging signal there. And uh, DLL3 targeting, maybe we can take it uh, more successfully uh, forward after the initial challenges there. Um, at UCLA, I'm looking at some, uh, also some PARP inhibitor work. Um, as we and um, at the at Mass General have described, uh, there is some synergy with low-dose uh, cytotoxic. So we're giving a temozolomide uh, along with telazoprib and a slightly different dosing, a little bit lower uh, than Anafarago gave. And um, we're, we're about to report, but we've met, uh, it was a, a Simon II stage design. We met our initial and now we've met our, our endpoint uh, for response rate. So we're excited to try to move that forward from here. Um, we also have another trial, which uh, I think combines a few of these ideas putting uh, into maintenance therapy uh, after first line. So with a tezolizumab, uh, another PARP inhibitor, niraparib, also with a low-dose uh, temozolomide. And there, there's multiple potential uh, synergies, including just PARP inhibitor with immunotherapy, PARP inhibitor with, uh, with low-dose chemotherapy, and obviously also uh, immunotherapy with chemotherapy. So all of those different uh, doublets within that triplet, I think, are potentially interesting. So that's a, a randomized phase two trial versus a tezolizumab alone, which is accruing currently. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see where we get with that. Uh, Tiziana, uh, what are you excited about these days? Right. I think this was a great overview. I think all of the strategies here um, that, that were outlined are very promising. Um, additional strategies, um, kind of thinking about the relapse setting is combination strategies of where immune checkpoint blockade fits into the subset of patients who have benefit and now have evidence of progression of their disease, and also looking at the platinum-sensitive population. So we're interested in combination of chemoimmunotherapy, um, exploring the relapse population that's platinum-sensitive, and kind of in a more definitive way answer the question of, can we reach out with a platinum um, in the relapsed uh, platinum-sensitive population, and where does IO fit into that space? Um, another, I think, interesting target that um, I think is still being investigated in small cell is really looking at the anti-GD2 um, target. And so those are things that we're also interested in and in further kind of investigating as well. That's great. Uh, I think we have a lot to still learn about this disease, but um, there's never a uniform way by which patient will present. So I think we can also maybe... Uh, along with our participants in the audience, maybe use some um, uh, case illustration to highlight some of the key, uh, you know, considerations as we manage this patient. So Tiziana, you want to take us through this first case? So here's our first case. This is a 72-year-old male who presented to the emergency room for worsening shortness of breath over the course of a month. He developed worsening shortness of breath with difficulty walking across the room, used to do yard work, and was really active until these recent uh, rapidly developing symptoms, and has a 60-pack year smoking history. He underwent further evaluation, including a CT scan that demonstrated a right lung mass, bulky mediastinal adenopathy, liver metastasis were also observed on the CT. He had an MRI of the brain, which showed two 
brain uh, METs. The biopsy was done of the liver, which showed small cell lung cancer. So let's take a moment to discuss what is the appropriate first line treatment option for this patient and what would you do first? Would you start with systemic therapy or would you do radiation to brain METs? Tofik, I'm gonna go with you. Yeah, I think this is one of our, you know, almost like a textbook presentation of what small cell is about. You know, a majority of our patients will have extensive stage disease at presentation, they're symptomatic. Uh, but now with the uh, new era of chemoimmunotherapy, I think we are beginning to have some of these options of what to do. Uh, looking at this patient who is very symptomatic, we want to get the patient started on treatment as quickly as possible. Um, not so much from the, um, the mediastinal disease, because we know that this disease is both sensitive to radiation as well as to chemotherapy. So for me, uh, if a patient can start systemic therapy very quickly, I expect them to respond and for symptoms to improve. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to uh, radiotherapy uh, debug the patient. So I would just go with systemic therapy. And either one of the Empower 133 or Caspian regimen would be appropriate. Uh, the question to answer here is the, you know, the approach in the past had always been when there is known brain metastasis to treat that first before we initiate systemic therapy. Uh, the Caspian trial did show us that when we have asymptomatic small metastasis, uh, we might be able to get away with starting with systemic therapy, monitoring those metastasis down the road and then treating them as appropriately. So in a patient like this with symptomatic chest disease and not symptomatic from the brain, I want to know how big those brain mets are. If they're less than one centimeter, then I will go ahead and start the patient on platinum-based doublet chemotherapy along with uh, IO. If you want to be a purist in terms of where the data is, if I want to do that, then I would do the chemotherapy with Dovaluma, because that is the trial that allowed for untreated brain metastasis. Uh, and um, then monitor the patient post-chemotherapy, immunotherapy induction. If the brain metastasis remains stable or even responding, let's not forget, about 30% of brain metastasis will also respond to systemic therapy. I will just continue to monitor the patient uh, going forward. Jonathan, what's your take? Uh, exactly as you said, I think it's it's really been uh, freeing in a way to to be able to just get on to systemic therapy. Uh, a lot is how how you see the patient and and trying to weigh uh, neurologic uh, symptoms versus systemic symptoms. But this sounds like all systemic symptoms, and and we know that that that's where we want to get our our therapy directed in the past kind of setting up whole brain radiation and and all that that entails could be a month and at which point patient may not be well enough for systemic therapy so i've been very happy to start with systemic therapy and the the other thing that that we've started to do more is to think about stereotactic radiation it used to be something we never did but now if uh, if it's a limited number of lesions especially in this case where you're starting on systemic therapy, where you think you might get some CNS control. I've appreciated being able to put off whole brain radiation and, and all of the toxicity and decreased quality of life that that entails. Uh, and perhaps we might get SRS in, in between cycle one and two, for example. Uh, but a lot depends on the details, how big they are, edema, et cetera. Can I bring something back to discussion? Tofik, you mentioned, and I appreciate your comment about the Caspian and the inclusion of patients with small untreated asymptomatic brain mets. Give us your take on which agents do you think are really the most active here in terms of brain mets in patients with small cell lung cancer? And at what point would you re-image and consider taking a pause or continue on with systemic therapy for patients in the presence of controlled brain mets with systemic therapy? So which agent is really active in the brain? I think it's difficult to say that one of the other of the regimen is doing the work. We know before the advent of immunotherapy that chemotherapy did work in brain metastasis for small cell. We never proved it because 
We are always worried about that progressing before the patient will get benefit. So the approach had always been go with the radiation to the brain, whole brain, and then start systemic therapy. We also know from the earlier uh, studies of immunotherapy alone that intracranial response is just as good as extracranial response in non-small cell lung cancer. And now we have prospective randomized trial in melanoma also showing that immunotherapy alone can actually control uh, asymptomatic brain metastasis. Uh, so I would say that perhaps the combination of the two uh, backbones, chemotherapy and immunotherapy is also helping to control the disease in the brain. Now, in terms of what to do after you're done with the induction phase of the treatment, do you actually go ahead and treat that metastasis before you move forward with maintenance? If, if we want to learn as much from the trial as possible, the Caspian trial actually did not mandate treating the brain metastasis if it wasn't symptomatic. So my approach for those patients, we have elected to start with systemic therapy, is to just monitor and wait until either there's evidence of further progression or symptoms uh, to treat the, the brain metastasis with uh, radiation. If I do elect to monitor and not treat, the requirement then is that the patient should be able to have not just CT scan of the head, but adequate MRI staging at least once every two to three months uh, to monitor those spots. So that has been my own uh, approach, consistent with what was done on the study. Great, thank you. I think case two, Jonathan can take us through this. Sure, so uh, in some ways a similar case um, with initial presentation, but no evidence of metastasis. This is a 68-year-old woman with a large smoking history who uh, uh, was found to have on uh, screening, actually, a left lung mass uh, with hilar adenopathy. Uh, PET-CT showed FDG uptake at the mass and lymph node, uh, but no distant metastases, and biopsy confirmed small cell lung cancer. She was treated with cisplatin and atoposide and concurrent radiation with curative intent followed by PCI. Eight months later, recurrence occurred uh, in the mediastinal lymph nodes and bone metastases. This was biopsy confirmed, and uh, patient maintains a good performance status. Uh, she also, I think, uh, interestingly, makes a point of saying she insists on a, improving her quality of life. Um, uh, I think that's uh, interesting, of, of course, uh, very valid, and, and many patients do bring up this question. Um, uh, Tiziana, how do you um, uh, approach a patient like this? What, how do you think about the treatment options? And specifically, how do you address her concerns about quality of life? I think this is, you know, a really important thing to focus on. I think no matter what, I think this is a really good point that the patient is bringing up. So, but I think we should focus on quality of life no matter what in all of our patients who present with something as serious as advanced small, uh, not a uh, small cell lung cancer. But in the case of this patient, I think, um, first of all, addressing what does she mean about quality of life? What does that mean to her? What are her goals and what are the things that she hopes to accomplish? And then trying to set up a, a good supportive situation within our multidisciplinary team of things that we can offer her beyond you know, systemic treatment to control her disease, which I would argue can also help improve her quality of life. As we were talking about before, um, there has been data with Empower 133 looking at whether the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy affected quality of life in a negative way, and the answer was no. And a lot of times with our patients who have uh, small cell lung cancer, they have high burden of disease, high burden of symptoms, and the chemotherapy, which can work quickly, can actually relieve some of these symptoms and improve their quality of life. But certainly beyond that, um, it, it may be that getting the multi-D approach with nutrition and social worker and psychology and other things that can help the patient sort of address some of the symptoms that worry her about quality of life. Now for this patient, um, because she had recurrence of her disease eight months after completing chemo with a platinum atoposide, um, I would define this patient as having platinum sensitive disease using sort of the clinical cutoff of six months. Sometimes studies use um, you know, a shorter interval, but I think clinically in general, uh, six months is a good benchmark to say that the patient has platinum sensitive disease. And this patient would be based on good performance status, um, 
and perhaps here without knowing um, comorbidities that would not preclude her from getting it, I would do a platinum etoposide combination. And I would use immunotherapy here since this patient is immunotherapy naive. And we've seen that IO monotherapy really in the second or third line setting um, has not been as successful as we had hoped it would be. So this patient would be somebody that I would offer and have a discussion about carboplatin etoposide in combination with immunotherapy. Tafik, anything you would add? I think uh, Tiziana really highlighted the, the importance of, of quality of life. And, you know, it's however the patient defines it. But oftentimes as clinicians, when we hear that, especially some of our colleagues who are not necessarily uh, practicing clinical oncologists, they might take that to mean that the patient doesn't want treatment or doesn't want anything that would impact their quality of life at all. But in this case, especially in small cell, where we know that with disease progression, this is associated with a lot of symptoms. Actually, treating this patient is a good way to help them maintain their quality of life for as long as possible. And one thing I would add here is this is actually the type of patient where we want to encourage you know, our uh, experts in, in um, palliative care to be part of the treatment plan for this patient as early in the course of the treatment as possible so that they can help co-manage whatever symptoms would arise and help this patient maintain their quality of life for as long as possible. I agree. I, I think there still is in the popular culture this idea that there's a trade-off between living longer and quality of life. But with many cancers, and perhaps small cell lung cancer is, uh, you know, early, early line small cell lung cancer is one of the best examples quality of life and effective treatment go hand in hand. Uh, we have uh, one more case that I'll send it back to Taufik for. So this is um, something that's a little bit more complicated than the straightforward ones we've had and uh, reflect now what we are facing in the clinic. Mr. B, 65-year-old male, uh, presented with shortness of breath, x-ray showed the lung mass, CT scan confirmed the lung mass along with mediastinal adenopathy, and liver metastasis, uh, multiple brain metastasis on brain MRI. As a previously uh, healthy patient, now presenting with dyspnea and cough as, that has progressed over months, uh, the patient is now here to see us. And the question is, in the presence of multiple small CNS metastases, liver metastasis, mediastinal adenopathy, what treatment should we recommend for this patient uh, to help get them back on their, you know, on their feet? As we've already discussed ex exhaustively about you know, the opportunity that we now have to be able to hold up brain-directed therapy when it is asymptomatic, small, and limited number, uh, this patient was treated with chemoimmunotherapy. Did well, the cough and the dyspnea resolved within the first two cycles. Uh, he went on to complete four cycles of chemoimmunotherapy, at the end of which um, had old brain radiation treatment, uh, given the multiple brain metastases, some of which actually progressed slightly after induction chemotherapy. And then he continued with maintenance immunotherapy on a monthly schedule. Uh, unfortunately, at some point during the maintenance immunotherapy phase, uh, while he was still having good response, he reported that his dyspnea is coming back and was noted to be somewhat hypoxic in the clinic, you know, raising several possibilities. Could this be recurrence of the disease? As we know, uh, a lot of this patient can progress within months of finishing treatment. But this is the scan uh, that was obtained following the patient's concern, uh, showing some newly developing ground glass changes uh, that are non-nodular, diffuse, and uh, not related to the primary site of disease for which the patient was treated before. And can, as can be noted, there is really no evidence for recurrent mediastinal adenopathy. So all of this will suggest some sort of treatment-related toxicity. And in the context of immunotherapy, I think all of us will immediately think of uh, immune-related pneumonitis. So we know that immune-related adverse events, when it comes to the use of immunotherapy, can affect any organ system. And the best way to manage this is to anticipate it, uh, prepare our patient for likely symptoms, 
but more importantly to let the patient know that while the disease may start primarily in the chest and perhaps in some may be just limited to the chest and a small amount of disease outside the chest, toxicity from immunotherapy could affect any organ system in the body, you know, from head to toe, as we say. It's actually likely that if you're going to see anything, the most common organ affected by adverse uh, immune-related adverse events is skin and endocrine system. Uh, but respiratory system is the one that we worry about because a lot of our patients with small cell are heavy smokers with already compromised pulmonary reserve. So being able to detect this very early, instituting treatment uh, appropriately, and then monitoring for response, and then deciding whether or not to re-challenge the patient with immunotherapy uh, is key. And I will hand it over to Jonathan to guide us through some of the uh, audience participant questions um, that come in during this presentation. So it's been such a great discussion. We've actually covered a lot of these issues already. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with both of you. Um, I think for the sake of time, let's let's go through quickly and just on these topics, kind of move, go around and see what everyone's thoughts are. So uh, we discussed some of the changes in radiation um, and I'm interested in knowing, do you, do you use PCI for limited stage, extensive stage or, or consolidated chest radiation? Uh, Tiziana, how do you how do you advise patients during the for those radiation questions? Right, um, I think the PCI for extensive stage um, has really been used less and less in clinical practice. And I think when you look at the Empower and the, when you look even at the Caspian study in terms of the standard of care patients that received PCI, you see that those numbers are going down. And that's mainly because there was a stage uh, a phase three Japanese trial that really showed that there wasn't necessarily a benefit for PCI in extensive stage if you could monitor the brain, which requires active brain MRI surveillance, as Tofik had pointed out before, and then sort of intervening early before the patients have neurologic symptoms. So I think the PCI for extensive stage is something that um, has declined in terms of numbers that we use, but there are ongoing studies to really answer that question. And I think um, until that study is completed, I, I do tend to use PCI for limited stage disease in the curative setting. The consolidation radiation question, I think, is also a very important one, especially in the context of what we've seen that perhaps radiation and immunotherapy can synergize. In both the Caspian and Empower 133, consolidation radiation to the chest was not permitted. So we don't have that answer from a clinical trial standpoint in a phase three setting. So I do, um, I do try to really individualize that approach for consolidation radiation to those patients that I really think will benefit from the use. Let's say it's somebody who's had a great response outside of the chest, has some residual disease in the chest, and presented very symptomatic with bulky central disease, that I'm worried that they may have you know, progression of their disease at that site early on, because we know that the PFS is about six months with these combinations. Taufik? Yeah, similar approach. Uh, I generally don't recommend PCI for extensive stage disease. I encourage my patient to talk to the radiation oncology as well. Uh, limited stage, I still do if they had good response, and I don't use consolidation chest radiation at this point in the absence of active progressing disease. Um, I, I, maybe in some ways a little bit of, in the middle there. We, I've, I, we've stopped using it for extensive stage and actually unlikely to use it for limited stage as well. The, the data is so old at this point, all CT-based, um, that, uh, that I, and I've seen such trouble for patients that may be cured of their small cell, but, but limited uh, function because of brain radiation toxicity. Uh, and then consolidation radiation, exactly those cases that Tiziana was talking about, the ones that I'm worried really could develop into SVC syndrome or um, uh, uh, airway compromise um, if there's rapid growth. We've, we've looked at radiation in those cases. The next question that I'd like to ask is really just a, a theor theoretical question, hard, hard to be sure, but very interesting why the maintenance and second line IO trials failed whereas these two practice-changing phase one trial, sorry, uh, first-line trials of chemoimmunotherapy showed a benefit of immunotherapy. And at the same time, that benefit doesn't show up until the maintenance phase of therapy. It's something of a conundrum. Taufik, how do you put, it, put those uh, facts all together? 
Yeah, I think what these studies are telling us is that you need some degree of cytotoxic chemotherapy in the mix to get some ben real benefit from immunotherapy in this disease. Uh, as I alluded to while discussing the PDL1 expression, only a small proportion of our patients are likely to have the inflamed or immunotherapy susceptible disease. So when we go into unselected patient population and we're using immunotherapy alone, we may actually be missing out uh, on the potential benefit in the small subset. So I think the maintenance strategy checkmate 451 failed in part because there was a delay between the time patients were getting chemotherapy and when we, they went on the immunotherapy. Secondly was the regimen was somewhat toxic, could not be delivered. And then when you look at the checkmate 331 of topotecan versus nivolumab that also did not show uh, benefit, part of that could be one, how we define benefit. You know, if we go by our traditional, you know, um, hazard ratio for overall survival based on the median estimate, we may actually be looking at the wrong endpoint. So if you follow that trial out, which is post hoc analysis, you could see some tail to the curve in those patients treated with nivolumab. Uh, so perhaps better study design, but more importantly, finding the right biomarker to select patients who are likely to benefit uh, could have helped uh, should um, uh, impact of those strategies. Tishiana, any thoughts? I, I completely agree. I think, you know, um, another just point is maybe lack of efficacy really in that setting. You know, you've got a very refractory population. And I think we're seeing even with the small cell lung cancer subtypes that even within certain subtypes over time with treatment, there appears to be some migration to different subtypes. And so this resistance, this heterogeneity makes it very difficult to have um, an agent, you know, in later lines of therapy be successful in all comers. So again, I think it's getting back to the biomarker strategy and really identifying subsets more likely to benefit from one strategy or another um, versus doing trials for all comers, which are unlikely to be successful in a very refractory population. Great. It's, it's really uh, been a, a real pleasure to speak with both of you and get your thoughts. Uh, why don't we just go around the circle and see if the, um, there's there's any concluding thoughts, uh, Tiziana? What what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, we've made some progress in small cell lung cancer. I think chemo IO is here to stay in the front line. Um, certainly, biomarker development is key, and I'm really interested in seeing a little bit more of the small cell lung cancer subtypes and prospective trials to see if that's really going to pan out and help us differentiate therapies that really benefit one group versus another. And Taufik? I do agree with uh, all of that comment. I also look forward to the ongoing trials, especially in the limited stage disease. Uh, I think it's time for us to have something new for that uh, population of patients. And uh, I would add, it's really um, uh, quite nice to be able to come to patients now and say, there is a new focus on small cell lung cancer. Um, what I find talking to patients is so meaningful is not the, the, the month improvement in median overall survival, but the real chance of longer term survival with, with quality of life that they can, uh, that we can hope to achieve on the new therapies. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you all. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KBM 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.